It's such a great pleasure to welcome to this conversation Josh Wolf, co-founder and managing partner of Lux Capital. Josh is also a board member of the Santa Fe Institute. He founded Lux Capital to support scientists and entrepreneurs who pursue counter-conventional solutions to some of the most vexing puzzles of our time in order to lead us into a brighter future. The more ambitious a project, the better. And Josh, I'll ask you to expand a little bit on your background in just a moment. I'll just note uh, one of uh, the uh, amazing things you've done uh, along the way in uh, 2008, uh, co-founding uh, Curion and uh, funding it in uh, the business of uh, cleaning up nuclear waste. And uh, the company actually uh, was one of the responders to the Fukushima disaster. And then some uh, seven or eight years later was acquired by Veolia for uh, nearly 400 million or 34 times uh, Lux's uh, original investment. Uh, so that's very impressive, uh, perhaps especially uh, given your background uh, as, a, as a graduate in economics and finance. So I'd love to just hear a little bit about uh, how you've uh, built up this amazing expertise in uh, some of the most cutting edge uh, areas and technologies uh, of, our, of our day. Well, it is a bit cliched, I think, but um, I would say that passion is the best predictor of success. I think it is true of the entrepreneurs we back, and I think amongst the partnership here at Lux, it's true in that if somebody is really passionate, almost bordering on being psychotically obsessed with a particular topic, then they're going to really uh, flesh out who the players are, who's for real, who's legitimate, what the insights and secrets inside of the industry or the sector are that other people don't know. And um, I think that leads you to, you know, these opportunities. So in, in particular, in that case of Curion, uh, you had a, a backdrop where most of the competition in venture capital was looking at clean tech, green tech, alternative energy. They were funding biofuels. They were funding uh, wind, uh, windmills, wind farms. They were funding um, agricultural approaches to, you know, growing, uh, fuel. They were looking at uh, electric vehicles and batteries, um, uh, maybe some technology, natural gas. Virtually nobody was focused on nuclear. And so it's sort of like the Sherlock Holmes, you know, the curious dog incident of the dog in the nighttime, you know, listening to what nobody was talking about was just as instructive as listening to what everybody was talking about. And that led us to get interested in nuclear. Uh, it was not a topic that was being talked about by Al Gore, who was on the speaking circuit and, you know, being widely hailed as sort of, you know, the reverend of, um, you know, climate change and, and uh, what had become a little bit of almost religious belief amongst entrepreneurs and technologists and, you know, the masses. Um, and it was amazing that if you really cared about zero carbon, uh, you know, low or no emissions, uh, that nuclear was absent from the conversation. So, so our first clue or instinct or signal was, um, you know, why is nobody talking about nuclear? And then we spent a good year and a half looking at every part of the fuel cycle. We started with the uranium miners who um, we thought, okay, this would be sort of interesting because, you know, they would be the input to um, <clears throat> growing demand, you know, if nuclear were to take off. And we basically learned that those were mostly dominated by hucksters and fraudsters in New Mexico and Nevada and then a bunch of people that were sort of in Australia and South Africa and Kazakhstan. 
and it wasn't really venture-backable. Then we looked at modular reactors, which were small-scale reactors, and that was really just the domain of billionaires or sovereigns, countries that you know wanted to sort of develop small-scale nuclear reactors. And, and then you started asking the question of what sucks, which is a favorite question that I like to ask of some of the most sophisticated industries. And what sucked in nuclear was what do you do with the waste? And there was, at the time, 104 domestic reactors and 440 globally, and there was an opportunity to basically treat low-level waste, which is the low-dose radiation that might seen in, you know, workers' clothing or things that were happening with, you know, odd materials around the plant. And then there was the high-level waste, which was the spent nuclear fuel rods that, uh, you know, basically after their life would go into a giant pool of water where the neutrons would be naturally absorbed by water and, you know, they would cool down over five years and then go into these casks, these what they call dry casks, almost like being buried in the coffin. And there was one company that sold vertical ones, one sold that horizontal ones, and there wasn't really an opportunity there. But there was an opportunity for all the pre- and post-Cold War bomb making that produced an enormous amount of nuclear waste. And that was at places that most people had never even heard of. Um, and for good reason, you know, nobody's really talking about this kind of stuff. But places like Havana, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, Hanford, Savannah River, Idaho National Labs, um, in the UK, you had Sellafield. In France, you had La Hague. And that was just an amazing opportunity because you look at the amount of money that was being spent, and most of it was human capital and labor, and there was very little hard technology. And so we thought there was an opportunity to take high tech to this big industry, and, um, and it would have the benefit of thriving and winning regardless of what happened to nuclear. If you had new nuclear, you'd have more demand for waste. If you had status quo of plants just getting older, as they aged, there would be more demand for waste cleanup. And if you had either a zeitgeist change as you had in both Southern California and Germany, where people were environmentally conscious and saying, let's shut down nuclear in favor of alternatives, all that shutting down would be decommissioning and deconstruction. So there would be waste management, let alone all the uh, post-Cold War you know, uh, waste processing. And so, so that became the thrust. And we went looking for a company to fund and we couldn't find one. So we found technologists and entrepreneurs and started a company with them called Curion. And as you know, uh, very little capital went into that and a total negative black swan, which was the uh, uh, Fukushima disaster, which was precipitated by a tsunami and you know, first the seismic event that led to the tsunami. And then this little company, Curion, became the only U.S. company picked for the cleanup and went from you know, a million in revenue in the first year to 160 million in revenue and 40 million of EBITDA. And we sold that for about 10 times EBITDA. And we owned a third of it for a very tiny check. And it uh, it was a great moneymaker for our investors and the entrepreneurs and and uh, did a lot of good for the people of Japan. So that was a, a great story that, as one of my mentors um, says, has the benefit of being true. Well, that's very impressive. And uh, it's it's obviously a very long way from the conceptual realization that you just outlined to building a viable business in that space. Uh, you alluded to uh, recruiting the right team. Uh, if you wouldn't mind sharing just a little bit more about um, how you went about actually building a viable company and uh, maybe more broadly, how uh, do you uh, aid entrepreneurs in uh, that kind of effort uh, in your other investments as well? Well, I think it is generalizable across all different companies, um, it being the process that you take in company building. So if you look at the foundations of a company, it really comes down to team, technology, and market. And in each one of those things, if you were to assess all the things that can go wrong, which is a favorite lens through which I like to look at how you can create value, which in, in, in my framework is by eliminating risks, 
which means you have to identify the risks. And thus, everybody here at Lux has been indoctrinated with this quote that failure comes from a failure to imagine failure. Then it leads you to the, the positive, constructive things you can do to eliminate things that could go wrong. So you are starting a company. Um, you first want to have basic understanding of the market and what is being done, um, who the competition is, where the white space is, um, what sort of angle of attack you might take. It, it would be no different than if you were thinking about it as seizing land in geopolitics or warfare. It would be no different in sports if you were trying to assess you know, defense uh, or offense strategy and where there was white space and, and thinking strategically about that. What are the resources? What's the talent? What's the team? What's the tactics that you would need to be able to go and seize ground? And it's the same thing in thinking about market share. Now, the difference in a lot of the businesses we fund is that sometimes the market is being created by the particular venture or startup. In this case, there was an ex existing established market, but you had a few things that were going on. You had relatively older workforce. And so people were basically cashing checks and they were veterans, but they didn't have an entrepreneurial spirit. So there was an opportunity to have a company with an entrepreneurial spirit, which meant people that had uh, equity, they felt like owners, they were a startup, they had a mentality if it was us against the world, uh, all of which I think is a, ver a very valuable fuel and a mindset which culturally matters. The second is technology. Um, what could you do or assert that you could do that nobody else could do? And could you develop a competitive advantage around that? Now, competitive advantage could be um, sort of implicit, which is you know things that other people don't know. It's trade secret. You keep it. Uh, you have talent that other people don't have. They're able to do something that other people can't do. And it can be explicit. So there's patents. There's legal monopolies that you have, whether it is a composition of matter patent or uh, an application or ability to go after a particular market. You know, these are government sanctioned monopolies that basically quid pro quo say, you tell us how you do what you do, and we let you have a monopoly on that particular uh, technology or technique. And so uh, so that's the second thing. Um, the, the third thing is thinking about whether you are going to be, you know, very aggressive to industry or you're going to partner with industry and how you're going to do that. And that in part depends on management who is able to assess, you know, the, the playbook of um, the big players and how they're going to partner with them or ultimately try to get acquired by them. Um, and then you want to basically set up to technologically impress and wow people so that they see things like, oh my God, I can't believe that these guys are able to do X, Y, and Z. And you want to under promise and over deliver as a company. And I think that's how you build a great culture. Um, you get everybody aligned and, uh, you drive towards a mission. Now in, in Curion's case, as, as one example, which is not generalizable, you know, they would have been a phenomenal business over many years, but basically became a spectacular one overnight because of this black swan event in Japan. And you know, it was a crisis that people responded to, the team bonded, and it was a U.S. team that was now teamed with a relatively stereotypical, xenophobic, um, very homogenous Japanese culture. And I think we ended up being advantaged in having a bunch of people on the team that either were from Japan or were familiar with Japanese culture, and they really treated it in a very honorable, classy way, uh, the opportunity. And... Um, and I think that that gave them a competitive advantage too. So the generalizable things I think across anything, because you know we invest in a wide range of things from nuclear waste to robotic surgery to uh, drones and satellites and artificial intelligence and brain machine interfaces, you know things that are right out of science fiction movies, is it really ends up being about the team, the technology, and the market, and identifying those risks that you can eliminate in each of those and thus create value so that other investors are you know, effectively paying a higher price over time than, than you originally did. And you mentioned uh, identifying potential drivers of failure and then systematically eliminating those. 
It reminds me a little bit of uh, Charlie Munger's uh, invert uh, philosophy. Uh, let's let's talk a little bit more about uh, your investment process. Uh, I'd be curious to learn what it is um, you look at and how you actually um, come to uh, evaluation. What kind of uh, success rates do you expect? Uh, because uh, you, it sounds like you think very much like um, some of us on the public side who consider ourselves value investors. How do you take that kind of mindset to the venture world? Well, certainly the smartest value investors I know are both, you know, rational, they're grounded, they uh, probably think about risks first, what's the downside, you know, what are the real asset values, what's the earning potential, um, you know, they're less narrative driven, right, which are typically growth and momentum investors. And I think in the venture world, um, uh, not to say that we don't have people on the Lux team that aren't focused on narrative, because I think there's an enormous power of narrative, uh, enormous power to lower your cost of capital from future investors, enormous power to attract talent and lower the slope of convincing talent. Um, narratives really matter. But but I think that mindset of, you know, starting with what what's the, the base asset value and what's the core competitive advantage and, and many of the qualitative things that I think really smart value investors look for is is very similar to the kinds of things that we're assessing in, in establishing you know, a company very early on. Um, Process-wise, there are inbound and outbound things that are are flowing in all the time, you know, what venture capitalists generally call deal flow. In the public markets, you know your universe of companies. Um, you know, there's a, a swath of companies at any given point in time, you might think it is a good business, you might think it is trading at too high or too low of a price, um, and you're either going to take inaction or action, you know, based on that. And, and of course, when the price changes and Mr. Market comes to you and you say, you know, geez, I'd love to own that at a much lower price and suddenly it affords you that opportunity. You know, it's an amazing opportunity and a lot of people have made a lot of money when a business in the course of a year or two has wildly fluctuated, you know, based on the whims of, um, of Mr. Market. In our world, um, you don't tend to have that same kind of uh, price volatility, which is an opportunity. Most people think about volatility as, as risk. Of course, you know, volatility is only risk and if you're worried about interim, you know, impairment of capital. But in our case, you start a company or you fund a company at the seed stage and there's an expectation of momentum. And um, when a company hiccups or has a down round, it usually is a, is a death knell for the company. It isn't an opportunity to necessarily be an early you know, a, a buyer and increase your stake because you have all kinds of qualitative human issues. You have people who now have stock options, um, having probably been underpaid on a cash, on a relative cash basis, expecting that their stock will become ever more valuable that now are underwater. And they look and say, geez, you know, I've already vested. Maybe I should jump to another, you know, startup. And, and so, so there can be a real downward spiral when you have uh, price dislocations in private companies, which is, you know, in the public markets, a, a, typically an opportunity. So that would be one key, you know, similarity and sort of process and one key difference when it comes to pricing. Um, but the biggest difference is inefficiency and efficiency. So even if you believe in the public markets that things are, you know, moderately or at times, you know, periodically or mostly efficient, you know, people can have all kinds of spread spectrum views on how efficient the markets are at any given point in time. But in the private markets, they are totally inefficient. You don't have short sellers. Uh, the marginal price setter is the person who is able to strike a deal with an entrepreneur. It is not um, quantitatively driven. There are no algorithms. Uh, actually, that's not really true. There are algorithms, although I think that most of them are BS. Um, and, and particularly, there are no algorithms if there's nothing to measure, right? So what you're really measuring is, you know, the veracity of the team and whether you think they're truth-telling, whether technology actually works, uh, how it compares relative to the state of the art on the market, what, you know, you think 
the future projections are of how a single technology demonstrated at a lab scale can actually, you know, at industrial scale, scale up. All of those things are, you know, really qualitative and judgment based. And the very judgment of a venture capitalist that is then acting on a company can affect the probability of its success. Whereas, you know, if you buy a stock in the public markets, you haven't really affected any signal value. I mean, maybe if you're a big famous value investor uh, or an activist, you know, that sends a signal to the market. But venture capitalists and the quality of the syndicate and their reputation can actually really positively or negatively impact the likelihood of a company's ability to recruit star talent, raise their next round, uh, get a deal or have negotiating leverage with a supplier, a partner, a customer, you know, joint venture. So um, it's way more inefficient and psychology and qualitative driven. I often joke that I haven't really looked at a spreadsheet in you know 10 plus years. Um, that's not exactly true, but but I would say the number of times that we've made uh, an investment based on some quantitative model is close to zero. In terms of uh, areas of investment focus for you, um, I believe one technology you're watching very closely is the rise of the GPU from gaming to power artificial intelligence and machine learning. Uh, what's your thesis uh, on that uh, kind of transition? Well, the thesis was, uh, and it has borne out, that uh, in part the narrative around graphic processing units, GPUs, was that it was tightly coupled to Xbox and PS4, PlayStation 4, and gaming, which it was. And so therefore, people were mostly looking at the cyclicality of when new gaming consoles were coming out and the drivers for those. What nobody was looking at was that these GPUs had been effectively repurposed and used by an entirely new market that didn't exist. It wasn't factored in in the early days to NVIDIA or analysts' view of NVIDIA. And, um, and, and, and that market was really the um, uh, people that were developing cutting-edge uh, technologies for autonomous vehicles and for um, uh, machine learning and uh, running algorithms on normally what would have been the domain of supercomputers. And so you have this confluence of uh, a lot of data being produced by a lot of machines uh, ever better computers because of the chips and algorithms that were allowing you to do effectively pattern recognition. You know, all the all the gobbledygook uh, buzzwords aside, uh, effectively machine learning is really doing, um, you know, uh, all kinds of statistical analysis and trying to make, you know, uh, predictions that can approximate real world. So um, everything from simulation to, um, you know, pricing patterns, um, uh, identification of uh, objects and prediction of objects inside of photos or videos, uh, voice recognition, you know, those are all things that increasingly were being driven by a different chipset than the traditional CPU that was powering our PC or laptop or even server-based applications. So we saw that uh, inside of some of our startup companies where they were using GPUs um, to, uh, uh, to do some of these things. And I got very excited in particular of one company called Zooks that had all this aut autonomous vehicles that were ingesting enormous amounts of information that traditional CPUs couldn't uh, uh, handle the compute load for. And they were like, oh yeah, those guys are over there from NVIDIA and you know, we've got chips that aren't even on the market yet. Um, and so I remember mm, probably three or four years ago recommending that to um, some of our uh, limited partners and some of my hedge fund friends. And you know, I think NVIDIA went up 12 or 15X and you know, it was at the time, I don't know, 15 billion to you know, Intel's 150 billion. And I said, that's a pair trade that's going to close. And uh, that proved right as the narrative got re-rated. It then got overdone. As GPUs both became this really hot thing and then also started being used incrementally by this entire crypto community for, you know, mining Bitcoin. And and, um, and then I think, you know, that got saturated and then, you know, sort of crapped out. 
And so, uh, but now you have a resurgence in a market that was totally um, in a nuclear winter, which was uh, semiconductors and FPGAs, uh, field programmable gate arrays, and novel chip architectures that are driving all kinds of new applications. To what extent are you opportunistic in terms of uh, the investments you make? And to what extent do you uh, say, I want to have X percent of the portfolio in this space and uh, Y in another space? Uh, great question. We, we start with a basic framework that um, about uh, a thir- if you took a three by three matrix, our expectation is we would be diversified in three different main areas and three different styles of investing. Um, the three different main areas you would broadly say are emerging technology, but one would be in energy and materials. So things that are derived by some innovation in physics, chemistry, and material science. The second would be in healthcare. And within healthcare, it's everything from healthcare IT, which are generally low hanging fruit, bit more competitive, easier to do, um, but also easier to get a little bit early scale, uh, all the way through things that are more sophisticated, take more time, have more risk and more capital is required which would be things like biotech, med devices, robotic surgery. Within healthcare, I tend to prefer the latter uh, amongst the team here, uh, just because I think it's harder to do and there's less competition, which I think is the way that you can get superior returns by being able to invest at lower valuations when you have less capital competing for the kinds of deals you're looking at. The third area is core technology, which you know, to your point about Charlie Munger and inverting is almost more defined by what we don't invest in. So we spend very little time, if any, in internet, social media, mobile, ad tech, video games. Um, And we do that because everybody else is looking in those domains. And we feel disadvantaged um, and are sort of intellectually arrogant to say that we are intellectually honest and humble, that we can't really pick a winner better than the next person there. And so uh, I actually don't believe that many people can pick a winner there, but a little bit of false humility says, let's just play a game that other people aren't playing. And so let's go into more sophisticated things where if you were to look at the common characteristics of our core technologies, they typically have, and again, sort of invoking Charlie Munger, like he would say this Lollapalooza effect when all these things come together, really high scientific and technical complexity. So people are scared off because they don't yet understand a space. Intellectual property. So there you have that legal monopoly that you can prevent other people from competing in your area. And then this classic, no matter how many Times people have read, you know, Thinking Fast or Slow, and, you know, Danny Kahneman is a friend uh, of mine. I, how many times, uh, you know, people have watched uh, TED Talks or listened to podcasts about behavioral finance? You can know all the tricks, but because you are human, you still fall for them. And, and uh, even Danny himself will say, you know, he himself falls for many of the biases that he's been able to catalog and educate, you know, tens of millions of people about. Um, so, so in this case, there's three behavioral sources, I think, of edge that are a bit permanent, which are um, scarcity of attention the media isn't hyping something up yet. And so nobody really knows about it yet. And that's, I think, valuable because it's scarce. Uh, The second is scarcity of people, the number of entrepreneurs that are investing or funding or involved in a business are few and far between. And so you have a labor arbitrage. Uh, And then the scarcity of capital, if if particularly those last two things hold, other investors are not chasing the same things you are. And therefore, demand is lower. And therefore, valuations are lower. And therefore, if you are right, future returns uh, should be higher. And so it's a good dynamic when you can find all those things, but it's also very rare. You're constantly out there looking for, you know, these weird idiosyncratic things, which by definition also require you to know what is everybody else looking at and therefore what do we think they're not looking at. So those are the three broad areas that we look at and a little bit of the philosophy behind that. On top of that, we have three different styles. So we do thesis-driven investing, which is my favorite, which is 
you know, identify what everybody else is thinking, find the thing that they're not thinking about, start a company from scratch or team with an entrepreneur to found a company. And we have done a ton of these and they have been some of our most successful investments. Um, and maybe we've had a pattern of luck or maybe there's something to, you know, starting a company in white space and, and trying to create a dominant advantage there. The second style that we do are people driven, which is a great benefit of private markets over public markets, which is if I back an entrepreneur, I can, you know, find the cadre of, uh, talent that they've recruited and trained and worked with and, um, you know, indoctrinated with their culture and their best practices. Uh, and I can do company after company with his or her, you know, the CEO's uh, uh, lieutenants. And so there's this great positive path dependent feedback from that, where in the public markets, if you find a discrepancy between price and intrinsic value, the market doesn't, you know, give you a call in two weeks and say, hey, I've got another one. Do you want a team? So, uh, so I think that's a great advantage also. And then the third are special situations, which I've joked over the past, you know, five years or so, or maybe even a decade, um, with the cost of capital somewhere between, I don't know, zero and negative 40 basis points globally, you know, every company is special and uh, really crappy companies are able to raise relatively cheap capital. I think the proverbial stuff is going to hit the fan. And I think that there's going to be a lot of good assets and great people that happen to be in companies or vehicles that are going to face liquidity crises. And I think that there will be an opportunity to recapitalize them um, at very low valuations and basically... Uh, the prior investors in the private markets will not have been paid for the time or the risk that they took and new investors that are willing to touch something that might seem to have a little hair on it will be able to, um, uh, you know, to, to get some great returns on that. When and where those things will occur is a little bit of a fool's errand to predict. You know, I've been saying this for a few years and so far, you know, being really the same thing as being wrong in that regard. It's why it's a part of our portfolio as opposed to like us being a secondary fund. But uh, I feel pretty confident with each growing day and some of the signs of excess that I see that there will be an excess of opportunities to, to get excess returns in using that kind of strategy of late stage businesses at early stage prices. And I assume in order to really do that effectively, you need to have an aligned uh, investor base yourself. Uh, would you care to uh, comment a little bit on, uh, on that and how you've uh, gone about building your own investor base? Yeah, sure. That, that also, um, I think, is an advantage in private markets. Um, you know, many of the public market investors I know have, you know, anything from, uh, you know, monthly to quarterly to annual liquidity. Um, the asset class that we are in, liquidity is far less predictable. We obviously, when we make an investment, are hoping that any given company could be 10x in five years. And if you're really good, about a third of your companies end up as 10x about a third end up breaking even and a third are total wipeout zeros and you've lost everything. And you would net a three X cash on cash return, which is quite good. But um, that requires you to have long locked capital. And I think uh, going back to the source of the edger advantage, if you agree that there's the opportunity for an informational advantage because of inefficiencies in private markets over public markets, great. If you agree that there's an analytical advantage, which is a hard one because there's a ton of smart people that, you know, are smarter than us about all kinds of things. And we might think we're smarter than other people, but you know, it basically washes out. Uh, lots of people getting the same piece of information and just analyzing it differently with something that, you know, is closer to ground truth. Um, but the third source of edge is the behavioral one. And I think in venture capital, being able to have a differing time horizon, the asset class generally are 10 year funds. So if somebody puts money with us, they expect that we are investing that money over the first five years and then harvesting it over the next five. Now, it might be that we invest it over two or three years, depending on the opportunity set, and then are harvesting it over the next five or six or seven. But generally, we have the confidence and the comfort that allows us to 
in an institutionally structured way, tie our hands to the mast like Odysseus and resist the siren song of needing to do something every year or two. If I felt that there was absolutely nothing to do this year because prices were too high or competition was too steep, then I tell my LPs, um, you know, we think that this is a crazy environment right now. We're going to sit on our hands and do nothing. And uh, we think next year is going to bring a more bountiful set of opportunities than the LPs that we have cultivated would support that. And so most of our LPs are significant foundations, endowments, large families, uh, some super high net worth individuals and, you know, billionaires. But, um, but by and large, they know that the kinds of stuff that we do, you know, is not the kind of stuff that you should expect, like, uh, you know, every three months or six months that there's, you know, some, some dramatic uptick in the business or, or some catalyst that has unlocked value in that time. It, it typically takes a very long time with a great deal of uncertainty. So, um, so that's a, a key thing in the structure. And then in the selection of our LPs, when we uh, had first started, you know, you sort of could get the money from, you know, whomever you might have known or, um, and, and over time you're able to, with performance and reputation, start to pick the investors that you want. A big portion of our investors base now are typically made up of three things. One is our no asshole rule, which, you know, you don't always know until after the fact, but there's some investors that, you know, whether they were rude to a team member here or our CFO or, you know, we're late on capital calls or something like that. They just don't get invited into future funds. And so that's pretty easy to filter out relatively quickly from fund to fund. And the second are LPs that we think are value add. So people that either in the case of very large families or individuals, they have large global holdings that span diverse industrial industries and, um, and markets. And, and we think that their involvement can help a particular portfolio company investment we make and our CEO, we can quickly navigate to them and, you know, they can make magic happen. Um, and the third, which has been a growing one over our past few funds has been the LPs that are really mission aligned. So these are people not about making money or inventing the future. That's our job, but the people whose money we make on behalf of um, are involved in foundations and philanthropies, which affect everything from civic rights, human rights, uh, women's rights, immigration reform, education reform, um, uh, children's hospitals, things where we feel good about making money, knowing that the profits we're making are for foundations and philanthropies and endowments that are you know, going back and, and making the world a place that we think it ought to trend towards. And it helps us as a team to you know, fight for 50 basis points or 75 basis points of ownership, knowing who we're doing it on behalf of. And, and frankly, it helps our entrepreneurs to know that you know, we're not just managing money for Say a, bit, a bunch of you know rich white guys. It's um, oftentimes some of the most important philanthropies and and uh, you know medical institutions in the world, and and they feel good about that. Picking up on a phrase you used a few minutes ago, uh, the proverbial stuff hitting the fan. You've been uh, quite outspoken on Tesla. I'd love to just understand uh, your thinking a little bit better and and why you felt the need to uh, to speak out. Well, part of it is, is being on brand. We are strongly in pursuit of, you know, scientific truth and, and the future, which many people think, well, you know, geez, isn't Tesla the, the, you know, flag bearer of inventing the future and bringing us, you know, to, a, as they say, you know, accelerating a, a sustainable energy future. Um, I, I think the thing that really started to um, make me feel like I was the kid in the crowd that, you know, screaming that the emperor had no clothes was around the time that Steve Jobs died, um, you know, you saw this ascendancy of um, and sort of hagiography of, uh, of Elon um, as the sort of, you know, God King of technology. And, um, and, and uh, you cannot really criticize the ambition 
you can't criticize his amazing ability to tell a narrative and uh, many of the things we actually look for in entrepreneurs, the ability to raise capital, uh, to lower the slope, to hire people, to really capture people's imagination. I think all of that was a virtuous thing. But I, I think around that time and the cameo with Iron Man and, and I think I think he realized that um, that this was a real asset. And um, and I think it just got taken a little bit too far. And, um, you know, some of the relationship with the truth appears to have, you know, started to degrade over time. And and um, and I think it's something that started to um, seem a, a almost more abusive. And I am not a religious person, and I take a natural aversion to some of the preachers and um, you know the mega churches that I feel like exploit people and take advantage of their credulity, their willingness to believe, and and basically part with their money. But it ends up enriching you know an individual or group of people, and and uh, elements of it are disingenuous. And, and I started to see patterns where that was happening. And so that's going back, I don't know, five, six, seven years. And uh, I followed it. And then uh, you just started looking at the economics and the actual fundamentals of the business, like you would value as a value investor. And you look at the cash flow and you look at the profitability and the absence of it. And you look at the capex and the operating expenses. You look at the amount of capital that they're raising. And you look at the words that are being used by management. And you start to just add those things up and say, something isn't right here. And, um, and, and then it became a real, you know, almost white whale thorn on my side where um, I became, you know, public and vocal about it. Um, it was like, on the one hand, speaking truth to power. On the other hand, you know, there were a lot of entrepreneurs and people in the Valley that were basically very unhappy about that because, you know, you were attacking one of the great, you know, patron saints of, of uh, techno-futurism. But, uh, but I've come to believe now that, um, that Tesla on the one hand and SoftBank at the other extreme you know, are both poster children of um, the current moment in markets where capital is cheap, people's willingness to suspend disbelief is high. It is against the backdrop where you see frauds that are happening from Theranos to Fire Festival to Billion Dollar Whale and beyond. And I think that when the tide comes in, you're going to see those two companies in particular potentially face very big liquidity issues. Um, I think there's a reasonable risk of Tesla filing for bankruptcy and restructuring while the brand and in some cases, the vehicles, I think, are you know just absolutely beautiful. And and um, I think that those will live on. I think that, uh, you know, the just operations and, and management needs to be restructured. And in SoftBank's case, I think that, um, you know, you've had uh, an ebullience of a marginal price setter in private markets with the Vision Fund paying uh, arguably insane prices, creating comps that people are referencing and having expectations of. And I think um, in the absence of either exits you know, from the vision fund, I don't know who the incremental marginal buyer is above and beyond that. And so I, I see, you know, a house of cards in both both cases in, uh, you know, Fremont and in, in Japan that uh, create a lot of systemic risk for the tech narrative in the cycle. Josh, one question on the areas of focus you mentioned for your fund, um, energy and materials. There's a perception out there, um, admittedly a, a very broad brush, but that innovation has been slow in those uh, areas. There certainly doesn't seem to be a Moore's law in energy and materials. Um, I'd love to hear from you what you're seeing in the space, what, what the bottlenecks are, and uh, whether uh, we're close to solving some of them and seeing actual um, you know, uh, compounding of innovation. So it, it is idiosyncratic, um, uh, and I think there's good reason. Most of those businesses are big, capital-intensive, dominated by oligopolies, and uh, therefore 
there isn't a great opportunity for a cycle of innovation where people are, you know, raising money, exiting, you know, developing profits, reinvesting. It's it's almost the opposite of what you have seen in, um, uh, you know, the ascendancy of the cloud-based tech giants, you know, the fangs and and so on. So, um, so, so that's the reason why I think you haven't seen that sort of pace of innovation or the Moore's law effect. Um, even though Moore's law, when you think about it, is really about, um, you know, in, in this bucket of energy materials, is semiconductors, um, which are hugely capital intensive and, um, you know, all about material science and chemistry and physics. So um, there's been pockets where we've seen opportunities. So one of those was a company, Luxterra, and this was a combination of material science and a special situation. The material science was silicon photonics, solving the last mile problem from getting information off of a chip into a data center or you know across long wires and uh, being able to do that photonically. Uh, Luxterra, I want to say their valuation before we invested was sitting around a quarter of a billion dollars, maybe 200, 250 million dollars or so. And we ended up coming in as a recapitalization, a special situation when some of the prior investors basically were tapped. They had underestimated how much money and time it would take. We came in effectively at a $10 million pre-money valuation after all of that. And then we ended up selling the company to Cisco for $660 million some years later. So, um, you know, that was a great example of something that was really rooted in Caltech innovation for silicon photonics. It was, you know, hard science, hard material. Um, and, uh, you know, we really benefited because of the uh, capital structure and pricing dynamics in, in the financing of the company. Um, and then ultimately that the technology was superior to other stuff that was out there and caught the eye of Cisco and Cisco saw it as a competitive advantage for this last mile stuff in data centers. And, you know, uh, that was the Lux Terra story. In the case of Curion, that was all, you know, energy and materials. It was looking at the sector within nuclear and saying what sucked and, you know, trying to find the thing that could go after it. Um, uh, if you take uh, another example in materials, there was a breakthrough in an area of physics and chemistry called metamaterials. Um, and we have actually done about four different companies with four different applications around the materials for metamaterials, which are materials that have a negative index of refraction uh, in simple human terms. That means um, uh, being able to steer wavelengths of electromagnetic uh, uh, activity without moving parts. So in the same way that you would want your cell phone, for example, to switch off of cell tower and cell tower as you move through the world, um, without any moving parts, which is the way that it works. You have a solid state uh, antenna inside of your phone. Uh, you would want the same sort of thing, say, for space communications, so that uh, if you were on a plane or a train or a bus or a ship, as it moved through the world, you would just switch from satellite to satellite in free space without any moving parts. And most of the way that that is done today is with a mechanically rotating, moving, uh, gimbal-operated uh, uh, satellite antenna. So literally, if you're on a plane and you use, you know, GoGo or whatever Wi-Fi is on your plane, there is a satellite antenna that is moving and rotating to track a satellite as it moves, which is just crazy. And so there was a breakthrough in material science that led to a material that let you create a phased array antenna, which meant that you could move the signal with no moving parts. It was just electronically beam steering. And that was a big deal and a big breakthrough. So, you know, that's a, you know, a, three examples that went from, you know, inside of data centers, you know, based on some breakthrough in material science and physics and silicon photonics to a breakthrough in um, ion resin exchange, which was the stuff that could capture the nuclear radioactive activity from cesium and strontium at the uh, Fukushima disaster to um, being able to create space-based antennas uh, communicating up and down at high bandwidth with no moving parts. That I think is going to reshape the way that uh, the world communicates. So, 
You mentioned uh, scarcity of attention as uh, one of the conditions that may create interesting opportunities. I think in public markets, we sometimes refer to time arbitrage as basically unearthing ideas that are unpopular today, but over time um, could, uh, could deliver good returns. Um, are there areas of the public markets uh, where you feel like uh, they're being neglected today, but that there's uh, things you're seeing in your world, uh, perhaps analogous to NVIDIA, uh, where you feel like those companies may actually be uh, worth uh, doing more work on? You know, I, I would be looking at some of the infrastructure around um, the classic Akamai-type companies in gaming. Um, you know, these are these are things that, again, when you have a re-rating of a narrative, right? So if you think about using that NVIDIA example, the narrative was this is a business where the drivers are the gaming consoles. Um, and then you have this new adjacent market that people just basically didn't know about or underestimated. So in the public markets, you know, companies where there um, are um, uh, real-time communication, real-time protocols, caching, things, things where, um, you know, people have typically thought about it as storing web pages, you know, or accelerating or speeding up web pages. Um, I think that there's a big opportunity for everything from video conferencing to real-time gaming to even gambling around gaming uh, or sports where speed is of the essence. Uh, and I think that there's the potential for an infrastructure boom there. I say that in the same way I discovered, um, you know, the NVIDIA insight being inside of, you know, this company Zooks, which is autonomous you know, vehicle company in the large portfolio that um, we have a company called Subspace that, um, you know, we originally funded because we thought that uh, when you look around and say what sucks, we thought what sucked was video conferencing. You know, you've got Zoom, you've got um, BlueJean, you've got High Five, you've got Google, you've got uh, Skype, you know, all these things. They all have their failings um, and nobody has ever really walked in to a, you know, teleconference or video conference to be like, oh my God, this is amazing. It just works so seamlessly and everything worked perfectly, right? It still sucks. And so um, we funded these guys and they've got fascinating combination of hardware and algorithms that are just accelerating that. But it has, it has led to insights that the first applications actually are seeing demand pull from a lot of the gaming companies who want, you know, state-of-the-art infrastructure. And I think when you look at the big tech companies, um, you know, Google, Apple, Amazon, Amazon's move into Twitch, Google's move into their sort of console-less cloud-based gaming platform. I think that that's going to be a big wave. And I think it's one that people don't yet appreciate. So that's, that's, a, free, uh, that's a free one on me. Terrific. Uh, Josh, I'd like to end it uh, with a name that uh, perhaps uh, some of our members may not be aware of and, and want to look into more, but to somebody who you've named as uh, the living person in science or technology who has had the greatest impact on humanity, uh, E.O. Wilson, uh, please uh, elaborate. Oh, I mean, I, you know, that, that's uh, such a bold claim I, I think I made on, uh, you know, I, I, there's so many scientists, by the way, that have, you know, had enormous impact that um, are so underrepresented, uh, underrepresented or uh, were not well known. Um, E.O. Wilson, for me, struck a nerve because, uh, I don't know, 20 plus years ago, there was a book uh, that I'm sure you've read and others have read, Consilience, and it was just the idea of the modern Renaissance thinker. It uh, is very analogous to Charlie Munger and uh, lattice work, uh, you know, uh, Robert Hagstrom, and thinking about how do you take lots of ideas from dis different disciplines, which I think is something that you strive to do as well, and many of the people that you interview and the things that you think about. Um, 
and, and how do you apply them to different fields? It's what led me to ultimately get involved with Bill Miller and Michael Mobison and some of the amazing people involved at the Santa Fe Institute. Um, it is the idea of complexity thinking and trying to find in this pursuit of scientific truth, um, looking for interesting ideas in uh, analogous spaces. So my daily life as a venture capitalist, I'm foraging. I'm foraging for new ideas. I'm looking for things that nobody else uh, has seen yet. You know, sort of like the old Linus Pauling quote that um, I know something that nobody else knows and they won't know until I tell them. Now in the public markets, um, you know, if you have that kind of information, you're typically going to jail because it's inside information. And in the private markets, it's a great source of alpha. And, um, and sometimes the insights that we get are because we knew something in some different company or some different domain, and it gives us some insight. And so, uh, you know, if you look at the uh, consilience type thinking, which is E.O. Wilson's, along with the work that he had on sociobiology, which was much more controversial and sort of uh, uh, particularly on gender lines, but, but thinking about evolutionary psychology, thinking about principles from chemistry and physics and biology that can inform things in markets, as a, as a venture capitalist, like I was saying, I forge and I look for new ideas. Well, ideas about how ants, which is a, uh, the main early protagonist of E.O. Wilson studying ants and ants behavior and the emergent behavior of, of colonies. And, um, uh, you know, that, that for me is instructive of this idea of, you know, randomness and optionality and going out and finding an entrepreneur, bringing it back to our hive. And then somebody else goes out and redoubles the signal. And, you know, before you know it, suddenly you're, you know, funding an entrepreneur that you just randomly met. Um, so it's, it's, uh, uh, it's an embrace of the random yet always interconnected many disciplines. And, and really the inspiration that I got from that was, was first EO Wilson, uh, and then ultimately Charlie Munger. Well, Josh, this has been terrific. Uh, thank you very much for taking the time to be here and uh, share your insights and wisdom so freely with our members. We truly appreciate it. Great, great pleasure, and I'm a, I'm a happy subscriber and reader, so thank you for doing what you do. Thank you so much. Goodbye for now. See you later.